Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Pain medications, analgesics, can be very helpful, but in our culture, we tend to be overly reliant on magic bullets, looking for single solutions, medications that will address all issues. And that sets us up for some of the crises we've been having with painkillers in this country. 60% of Americans who die from opioid abuse suffered from chronic pain. 30% of individuals prescribed will misuse the painkiller that they're prescribed. 80% of addicts started out with prescription opioids to address chronic pain. There are quite a lot of them on the market. I mean, the obvious culprit, OxyContin, but then there's also Demerol, Dilaudid, Tylenol with codeine, Vicodin. So let's start out with one of the Buddha's most famous suttas, where he talks about how we experience pain, and very often how we make the experience of pain worse. It's in a teaching called the Salatha Sutta, which is the sometimes translated as Dart Sutta or Arrow Sutta. I prefer Arrow, but it's up to you. And essentially, the teaching goes something like the Buddha says, when a naive person has a painful feeling, they generally feel two pains. One is physical, and the other is mental, by which the Buddha means psychological. And he goes on to say it's as if they were shot by an arrow and then chose to shoot themselves with a second arrow, the first arrow being the physical pain, the second being the mental. Um, They have a painful feeling, they resist it, they become obsessed with it, they focus on it, they try to get rid of it, and they fail to understand there's another way to respond to painful feelings. And then he contrasts normal responses to pain with the enlightened or the spiritual practitioner, who he says when they have a painful feeling, they don't wallow in self-pity, they don't become obsessed or focused entirely on the pain. And so he notes these individuals only feel one pain, just the physical, but they don't add in the mental suffering. They haven't shot themselves with a second arrow, he goes on to say. And this idea is also found in the core teaching of the noble truths. In the first noble truth, the Buddha reminds us that there are certain givens in life, which are old age, sickness, death, pain, separation from the loved. But in the second noble truth, the Buddha says the suffering of these experiences, which are those inevitable experiences, are made far worse by the way we react to them by the way we fixate on them, take them personally and try to resist and try to uh, seek a a way out to short-term central pleasures. 
So it's common to believe when we're in pain that the entirety of it is physiological or biological. And while pain does have, chronic pain does have, of course, biological foundations, the mental component is just as important and profound. And if we want to treat chronic pain, we must address both the specific sensations in and of themselves or the biological underpinnings, but then there's also the psychological response, which can feel uh, inevitable and can feel like there's nothing we can do about them. And yet they are not inevitable and there is things we can do. And when we do address the affective, as it's called, the emotional part of our response to pain, we can significantly reduce chronic pain, the intensity of it. So the emotional response or the effective response to pain, if it's unaddressed, invariably leads to even worse emotional states of hopelessness, sadness, anxiety, anger, further isolating individuals in pain from resources and diminishing the quality of life. So uh, I think this is a really important topic. Now, everything I'm going to say from here on before I jump in, I want to note that of course, medical treatments from surgery to physical therapy to medication are generally in and of themselves very helpful, but they in and of themselves almost invariably or rarely will reduce the uh, chronic pain to a significant degree unless we also address or manage the way we respond to chronic pain um, if we are experiencing it. How we think about chronic pain, how we focus attention on it, what our uh, expectations are, um, and so forth, as we'll see, helps significantly ameliorate and lets us live with pain uh, especially those associated with certain conditions, which I'll list. So before we talk about uh, um, solutions, let's go over what actually is the biological foundations of pain. So pain is stimuli that's detected by sensory neurons that have their cell bodies in your um the nucleus in your spine, and then very long dendrites in bundles or, or cables uh, stretch out to embed the receptors of these dendrites in skin, muscles, joints, bladders, visceral organs, digestive tract, etc. And we call these bundles of neurons or dendrites that extend from the, from the spinal cord to the skin, we call them nerves. And um, so they have all these receptors and these receptors are very, very 
specific in what they look for. Some look for light touch, other for heavy pressure, some for heat, cold, and so forth. And when they encounter a sensation that they're looking for, a, a signal is sent from that receptor back to the spinal cord, to the to the you know to the nucleus and then to the axon and then there are these relays of um of nerves that go up the spinal cord where more you know neurons with ax dendrites and axons just send the signal all the way up and eventually they reach a very important region of your brain, which is called the thalamus. And the thalamus is kind of like the relay station. And then that gets ferreted to the somatosensory. And that's where the signal is interpreted and where it's, the pain is located in your body and where some of the painful experience is represented. And all of that is inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. There's no way to change that everything that i've just talked about you 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 stub your toe you hit your head against something you bite your your tongue or your the side of your mouth there's going to be pain signals sent to your spinal cord up to your brain to the somatosensory and then it's going to map where it is and you're going to go ouch <laughs> but from this point on, there's the subjective or affective parts of the brain that kick in. So there's these other regions, the insula, which creates unpleasant feelings in the body in response to the pain. So for instance, if you stub your toe, all, the entire area around it might suddenly tighten or your stomach might become contract. You might feel this just clenching, um, but the, your body will feel this intensification. And then the amygdala creates the aversive, like anger and wanting the pain to go away. And the anterior cingulate co cortex will focus all your attention or my attention in on the pain. And then if the pain is really severe, there's another region called the PAG, which will uh, lead to a freeze response, but that's in very rare instances. But these three regions, the insula, the body's response and how we focus on it, the amygdala's aversive emotional response, and then the anterior cingulate cortex focusing attention creates the rest of the pain response. And it's particularly in the way the brain focuses or obsesses on the painful experience that there's a way out. And we'll talk about that. So when we do experience pain, there's this evolutionarily installed behavioral response to activate an immediate defensive fight flight response where we override our ability to think and just full-on survival behaviors take shape and natural selection doesn't really care too much about pain medication. What it really cares about is us surviving long enough to pass down genes. So it didn't really encourage or incline the brain to release uh, 
the natural opioids in it that would help with most painful situations. What it really does is highlight the pain so that we will withdraw and find shelter and isolate until the pain goes away. So, you know, the reason is, is that for much of our evolution, when we were in pain, we were weakened and vulnerable. And if we were outside, we would be vulnerable to attack from uh, other humans, from other species. And so there's this very strong withdrawal impulse that is activated. And all of the feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin stop being secreted when there's enough pain. And that's important because so much of the pain that we normally experience, if it's not chronic or not strong enough, is managed by both trace amounts of opiates, but also dopamine. And people who have chronic back pain and fibromyalgia very often have too little dopamine uh, in a region of their brain called the ventral striatum, but that's another story. So certain kinds of pain are innate. There's no way that uh, we all have the same, similar responses, being burned, breaking a limb, uh, tumors and so forth have very similar painful responses. But most chronic pain is very, has, is very highly subjective and people have completely different responses. So uh, the experience of cold differs, differs from one person to the next. There's a famous study where you have people put their hands into freezing cold or very cold water. And some people will give it a nine out of 10 in the pain scale and others will give it a one out of 10. And there are countless arguments amongst friends and couples over whether places are too hot or too cold. And that's because the sensation of cold is ultimately very subjective. Um, the chronic pain that has the highest emotional subjective components are back pain, muscle pain, migraines, all of which uh, and fibromyalgia, all of these conditions, while they do have biological foundations for sure, but they're all very, very um, responsive to placebo. So if you give people with these conditions, chronic back pain, migraine, fibromyalgia, uh, you give them a placebo, of course, that's a medication that they don't, that's a, a fake medication, that, but the patient thinks it's real. And uh, with these conditions, uh, individuals will find their pain dropping on average by 30%. And in fact, if they're given verbal reassurances by a doctor that the therapy will work, their pain will drop by as much as 50% with placebo. So that means there's a significant subjective component or the emotional response to pain is very significant in these conditions. So with pain, expectation is the key. Um, if we have a mental representation that an impending uh, event will uh, 
will be associated with pain and we've experienced that in the past, we will feel pain whether or not it's painful or not. And the pain will be significant. Um, Placebos work because we expect them to work. And what happens is your cingulate, which narrowly focuses attention on the pain, will stop doing that. And it will become distracted by other sensations. And the moment the brain is no longer fixated, focusing entirely on a pain sensation, guess what? The pain sensation becomes mitigated. So much of chronic pain is the fact that the anterior cingulate cortex focuses, narrowly focuses attention on the sensation, which then triggers a greater amygdala response and a greater insula response, which then makes the sensations worse. So when somebody is given a placebo, even though it has no biological effect and they're told this, this is really good pain medication, their cingulate, uh, literally because they expect it to work, they stop fixating attention on the pain. When people have severe toothaches and they go to a doctor and to a dentist uh, and the dentist says, I'm going to shoot you up with some morphine. But if in fact they're shot up with saline, um, they will experience significant pain relief the moment the needle hits or after the needle goes in simply because they were told and in situations where dentists, you know, due to emergency situations, don't have enough um, Novocaine or whatever, they'll try that because it's a way that uh, pain is significantly reduced. In essence, pain responses are triggered by sight or by sound and by expectation. So in situations where painkillers aren't available at all in war situations where somebody's had a, uh, a limb, you know, nearly blown off and the surgeon doesn't have access to painkiller, but has to immediately operate. Very often people will start to scream with pain before the actual uh knife hits their skin because they think they'll hear something, a sound that will be the sound of their skin being, uh, you know, addressed. A famous example is a construction worker, I think it was in England, who fell from a second story building. And when he landed, a huge nail went right through his boot. And, uh, they ru- he was in agony. They rushed him to the hospital. And when they got to the hospital um, and tore and literally cut off his boot, the nail went through, had missed everything. It had just gone between two toes. But because he saw the nail sticking up through his boot, he felt the pain as if he was impaled. And that's how strong expectation is in creating pain. And there's classic examples of this throughout. So if you just look up expectation and pain and placebo, you'll find all the study case studies. Um, So another factor that's really important is anxiety. Anxiety activates an autonomic arousal 
and um, it elevates adrenaline, which um, then uh, causes inflammation. It na arousal narrowly focuses our attention even more than the cingulate normally does. And so it's been found that anxiety disorders are comorbid in roughly 60% of patients with chronic pain. So there's a clear comorbidity with anxiety disorders and chronic pain. In fact, medications that reduce chronic pain uh, often treat anxiety as well. A classic example, duloxetine, commonly known as Cymbalta, it was developed actually to treat fibromyalgia pain, but actually it turns out it was just as effective in treating anxiety disorders. So, and it, it's been found countlessly in studies that if you address an underlying anxiety uh, disorder by uh, reducing life stressors, daily meditation, taking basic anxiety medications like SSRIs, generally chronic pain is significantly reduced. So um, expectation and anxiety are very, very key factors to how we subjectively uh, make chronic pain worse. There are two other factors that I won't talk about, but it's worth noting. The time of day makes it can exacerbate chronic pain. Chronic pain is almost invariably worsens at night when the body prepares for sleep. Sleep, <laughs> cortisol levels drop, which makes inflammatory responses more pronounced. And plus, when you're trying to sleep and you turn out the lights, then you're attention is not distracted from the pain and the pain will then feel worse. The other is that there's a genetic component to the sensitivity of the nociceptors. Those are the nerve receptors embedded in the skin and organs and stuff like that. That's very heritable in terms of some people have higher sensitivity, some people have lower sensitivity, depending upon how genes are expressed and stuff like that. So um, the key to walk away with is that expectations and anxiety affect how the brain highlights pain. And it turns out the mental representation how we, how we literally view ourselves in our mind plays a significant uh, influence on how much pain we experience. Mental representations are, it's been found in a study by Jackson and Morrison, to be the primary referent, which means the thing we refer to, uh, which it activates amygdala cingulate and builds emotional responses. So what this means is that individuals with chronic pain, it's been found, very often have distorted self-image. When people have chronic pain in their back, they have a mental image of themselves as weak, their back, they have images of their back being damaged, or they might have images of themselves um, as you know, weakened, smaller, and so forth. There's a dysmorphic uh, 
uh, quality to individuals who experience chronic pain. And various studies have shown that as people improve their body image, which doesn't mean they go to the gym, it means the image in your mind you hold of yourself, uh, there's symptom improvement in chronic pain. So the greater the, the distorted mental image we have of the area that's painful or our body itself, the more pain. And there's a great classic example of this. A famous neuroscientist named Ramachandran developed a solution for what's called phantom limb pain. People who've lost a limb very often would experience phantom pain. Uh, from even though there was no limb there. And the way he tr treated it was he created this device with all these mirrors. And when they stuck their, the, the arm and hand that still was with their body into it, it created a mirror image of where the missing arm and hand would be. And then they'd relax the, their hand and arm. And then the mirror image would relax and all their pain would go away because they now had a mental image of an arm and a hand that was relaxed and not withered up. And very often these patients would go into pain clinics and when they were asked to describe how they visualize their missing arm, it would always be, they'd say the sensation, the mental image would be very contorted. So when they were presented with this mental image of, of uh, their missing limb being relaxed, the pain would go away. So, um, uh, and there's another study by Berna and who are, where are my notes? Uh, Gosden and people like that, who showed that um, changing the mental imagery associated with the bodies, again, significantly can alleviate chronic pain. Another key approach besides visualizing yourself healthy, besides visualizing yourself active, uh, is distraction. Uh, the more we fixate or focus uh, and we allow the pain sensation to narrowly focus attention, um, the more pain we'll experience. On the other hand, uh, if we simply try to ignore pain by pushing it away, uh, anybody who's ever had chronic pain, and I certainly have from uh, an ongoing off and on sciatica issue, which kicks in um, out of the blue and for three weeks afterwards, I'll be in constant discomfort, sometimes walking a half a block will be too much to bear and so forth. So when um, distraction is a very powerful tool to alleviate chronic pain, um, distracting from pain is one of the most commonly used and in fact endorsed strategies for uh, controlling pain. And there's a whole paper I read that has this topic like distraction and is an analgesic <laughs> for chronic pain. So the way it generally works is we don't try to push away the painful sensation. We simply try to find something in the environment that is very, very 
engrossing. Now, this will come as a shock to you, but I actually have a, some tattoos. And uh, when I get tattooed, sometimes it's unpleasant. And sometimes it's also lasts for a number of times. And I found that when I'm getting tattooed, the evolutionary embedded response is for me to wince, contract my body, and to narrowly have my attention focused on the sensation of the needle going in. And all of that highlights pain. So what I've trained myself to do is when I would go into a tattoo parlor, I'd find something very uh, interesting to look at. And then I'd soften my belly, soften the... Uh, insular response to the sensations. And I wouldn't try to push away the pain sensations, but I would keep looking and not allow my eyes to close and not allow my attention to narrowly focus on just the pain sensation. And by keeping my awareness open and exteroceptive, which means looking at something in the world around me, I would find the pain significant no matter how brutal, it would be bearable. Another example of this is there was one time without any medication available, I uh, had a kidney stone, which if you, I hope you never have that experience. I can assure you it is horrible. It felt like there was a saw going through half of my body around where my kidney was. I was, you know, the pain was agony. But what I did was I lied down, uh, softened my belly, breathed really slowly, and looked out the window at a, at a tree in the distance and simply also counted in my head. And over time, even though the pain was excruciating, the intensity significantly went down. And then I uh, did pendulation. Pendulation is another form of distraction where you spend two to four breaths, just deepening your tension into the pain and trying to find the center of it. And you never will be able to because all pain is a representation by the somatosensor. You're not actually literally feeling the body. You're just recreating the body in your somatosensory. So focusing into the pain and then four breaths to a part of the body that doesn't have any pain and going back and forth, pendulating between the two has been shown to be another significant pain reducing strategy. So to review, uh, not allowing our attention to narrow, having something in the world around us to focus attention on, pendulating between areas of pain and areas in the body that don't feel pain, and uh, changing the mental image we have of our body, visualizing a strong, healthy, relaxed, comfortable body, um, all of these reduce the subjective, emotional, or affective responses to pain. The Buddha noted uh, constantly that pain isn't personal. 
that it happens to everyone. It's the nature of the body. And this is an important thing to reflect on. The more we take pain personally and, and respond to it with, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, it tends to activate default mode operation. Default mode operation is self-oriented thought. Self-oriented default mode operation thoughts activate the amygdala, and they create even more of an aversive, uh, triggered response to pain. So, whatever you do when you're in chronic pain, don't take it personally. <laughs> Remind yourself that all bodies, it's just a miracle to be alive. The fact that we have a body that's working at all, given how many different parts are involved and how uh, unusual consciousness is in the universe. And so that it's of the nature of being born in a human body, that pain is part of the ticket or the toll that we have to pay. And then focus attention on something in your environment that's engrossing. Uh, Csikszentmihalyi, the great um, clinical psychologist, noted how efficient uh, tasks that we do with our hands are for addressing uh, fixation on chronic pain. And that's really useful flow states. If you're somebody who likes doing something with your hands, do it. And now for the last two strategies. One is love. It's well established that oxytocin modulates pain. In fact, it's so um, powerful oxytocin that uh, many uh, uh, pain clinics and professionals have recommended uh, doing significant research into using oxytocin as a replacement for opioid therapies. Um, in fact, many suggest that oxytocin is almost as powerful a pain reliever as, uh, you know, uh, opioids. And one of the, um, there's this guy named Sean Mackey in Stanford, who's done this research and the paper was called something like viewing pictures of romantic partners or, uh, reduces chronic pain. And he found that people who are showed or held an image of someone that they loved um, activates not only oxytocin, but also the dopamine reward circuits in the caudate nucleus and dorsolateral. And what happens is chronic pain begins to be mitigated. So visualizing someone that you really love or, or feel have really positive, warm feelings about. Another study showed that uh, when people are given mild shocks, if they're holding the hand of someone they love, they experience the shock with half the intensity than if they're not holding anyone's hand. So that's how powerful being or holding or visualizing in your mind someone that you love. And finally, it would not be appropriate if I didn't conclude by noting how effective mindfulness practices are in addressing 
of the experience of chronic pain. If you look up mindfulness and chronic pain, you will be bombarded with so much research. It would take you months to go through. Um, essentially, there's, of course, in mindfulness, you can do the samadhi practices of simply narrow, of focusing your attention on a distractor. It could be a mental image of a Buddha or a deva or a place that you feel really safe. All of these are early Buddhist strategies. Or you can break down the sensations of chronic pain into their constituent parts, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. So you can first just fixate in on the actual pain sensation as created by the somatosensory. Then you can find the feelings in the body that are not directly the pain, but invariably tighten. And that's almost invariably the stomach muscles, the teeth, the shoulders, the a contraction in the front of the chest. That's courtesy of our insula and amygdala. And then, you know, you focus on how the a cingulate narrowly focuses attention and you widen attention away so that you're not just fixating on the pain sensation. And finally, we pay attention to the thoughts that we're adding on to the experience. That's the fourth foundation. And we change the thoughts from maybe the, you know, the worst thought is, why is this happening to me? And what happens if this pain never stops? Those are the two most exacerbating type of thoughts. And we focus instead of how can I right now relax and be with the sensation without seeing, just focusing in on it entirely. There's nothing wrong going on here. This is simply what bodies do. So just to sum up, we've found that changing the mental image we have of ourselves, uh, distracting or opening or widening attention so that we don't allow it to narrowly focus in on the pain sensation, being very uh, uh, concerned with the type of thoughts we have about pain, not adding self-related future speculation, and instead keep the thoughts on how can I make, how can I bring as much ease and comfort to the situation right now or focusing on some of uh, your thoughts on something else in the world. Love, holding in mind an image of someone that you really care about or a, a photograph of them literally or a cat or a dog that you really love or any other animal. And finally, mindfulness meditation, breaking down the experience into the constituent parts so that we can relax the emotional parts of pain and begin to separate what is uh, inevitable from what is uh, where we have some control. So thank you for listening to that summary of working with chronic pain. Uh, now I'm going to actually lead a meditation where we'll put these tools into practice. So find a really comfortable 
seated position. And just get really comfortable, obviously, to prepare for doing any kind of meditation to address chronic pain. We want our bodies to be as relaxed and comfortable as we can. So don't try to sit in a rigid, upright position. That is antithetical to what we want. Find a seated or a relaxed position. You can lay back on a couch or a bed. You can sit back in a chair. You can lie in savasana on a mat. And just for this practice, if any of us are experiencing any degree of chronic pain from migraines to uh, back pain, skeletal muscular pain, fibromyalgia, or any other condition, um, what we want to do is not narrowly at first bring our attention into the body like we do with most meditations. What we want to do is just bring attention to the sounds that are rising and passing around us. Sounds are a wonderful anchor, a wonderful way to keep the mind expansive and open so that we don't allow the mind to narrowly focus on pain. And just listen to the sounds and try not to visualize, even if you know what's causing the sound very well, just allow any mental representations of what is generating the sound, just allow that to not be what you're paying attention to. You're just listening to the sounds around you like they're a weird recording of a world you've never visited before. Almost like you're an anthropologist from Mars and you've just landed on Earth for the first time and you've never heard any sound before, but now you have all these sounds of cars or people talking or music in the background or uh, crickets or whatever pipes uh, with heat moving through them. And just allow the sounds to arise and pass like my voice. Every time your attention floats away from the 
sounds and your mind starts to narrowly focus in on thoughts or mental images or memories, just note whatever is seeking your attention. Assure yourself that you'll give time to these topics after the meditation. And just relax your body, return to the sounds around you, and just relax into this experience so that every time you return from a thought, the experience is fully easeful. You want to make it as rewarding as possible by relaxing, smiling when you return if that's available, having a nice full in-breath and a long out-breath, softening the belly. Just make returning to the present as pleasurable as possible and always keep those that awareness of sounds allowing your mind to be as open, spacious as possible. And we'll just sit here for a little while and just relax and just reconnect with the experience of being present and alive in a human body and really appreciate all the sensations of the body that are not experiencing pain because it's really such a miracle to have a functioning body.
So at this point, we're going to do some practices to address uh, or mitigate pain intensity. If you do have any chronic pain, you'll be working with that. If right now you're feeling pretty good, you can do the practice just to rehearse, or you can also, without doing any damage, you can experiment with uh, pushing a fingernail into the soft part of the fingertip of another finger, of course, just to create a pain sensation that won't be at all physiological damaging, but you can just see how the, which of these tools mitigate for you uh, the pain, or you can uh, sit in a slightly awkward position, but not anything that induces real biological harm, of course. So for the first image, I'd invite you to visualize yourself in a wonderful setting associated with your favorite time of year and you're doing something that's both uh, fun and vigorous. You might be climbing up a, a rocky terrain. You might be uh, uh, rowing a canoe across a beautiful lake. You might be uh, doing any other activity uh, that is associated with health and vitality. And if you can, hold an image of yourself smiling. And if it's available, if you can actually cultivate any kind of uh, positive facial expression while you're visualizing this mental image, add that as well. And just hold in mind some image that you really associate with health, strength, mobility, ease, and just really burn into your mind this image. If we can, just spending a little time changing the mental representation, the self-representation that we hold of ourself in our mind's eye.
And while you have this image of yourself, be sure that you also keep in the background to keep the mind as expansive as possible. You can also allow your awareness of sounds to be there. And for our second practice, letting the mental image of yourself in a healthy, strong body, let that image go and just find something in your sensory environment. If you want, you could do this practice with your eyes open that you can really rest and focus your attention on. Now, you're not going to try to push away or resist the pain. You're just going to allow any pain that's present to be there. But just allow your eyes to settle on the most um, pleasant or interesting object and really try to uh, really have the most detailed attention to it. If you want to work with your eyes closed, Visualize an image as, in as much detail as you can of one of your favorite places in the world. Could be like a sitting around a fire in a cabin or in a backyard on a, a swing or anything that just is associated with a place where you feel most relaxed. And just allow whatever pain is there keeping as much awareness of sounds to keep your awareness spacious and visualize in as much detail as you can remember uh, an image of a place or that you feel really safe. And if you're not very good at uh, visualizing things with your mind, I just repeat the name of this location softly in your uh, meditation. So now let's practice pendulation and just find if there is a pain, just we're going to really focus in on it and try to find the very center of the pain sensations. And we're going to breathe in and out twice. So if it's a pain in your back or any other pain, just try to find the absolute epicenter and just count just two breaths in and out and then bring your attention to some other place in your body that feels 
pleasant. Could be the palms of your hands or some other area associated with ease. Spend two breaths there. And then we're just going to go back and forth from the the uh, attention to the salient sensation, which is the pain, and then directing awareness to another sensation that's neutral or pleasant for two breaths. And now, moving on to visualizing the loved. Just if you can, conjure in your mind the image of one or more people that you associate with really positive emotional experiences, times of being really connected, loved, cared about. People alive or not, just visualize that individual. If you can visualize people in your mind's eye looking at you and smiling. If you can't visualize them, just repeat softly their name. And lastly, for our mindfulness approach, the first step is simply to find the actual body sensations. The, sometimes they'll feel when you really focus in like pain, it could be a dull, throbbing sensation or a very prickly pinpoints, needle points, uh, or like a uh, 
what feels like a sharp wound. And just bring your attention in and just find the absolute epicenter of the purely physical sensation of pain, wherever your somatosensory maps it in your body, just really find its center. Just really allow us to do the thing really that most of the time we don't want to do, which is focus in on the pain. And we're just seeing what the physiological part might be. And then Begin to expand out from that area and then see if you can locate all the other feelings that are added on to the those narrow physiological sensations. You note that there's areas of your body that habitually contract or tense around pain. For me, very often the stomach becomes just really tight, the jaw, the shoulders, the forehead. And so just for each of these somatic markers, just breathe into these areas and soften. So we're not pushing away the sensation of pain, but we're soothing the emotional response to pain soothing every other area in the body that habitually tightens and contracts when we're in pain. And for the third foundation, just bring attention to awareness itself. Is your awareness jumpy, jumping into the pain and then away from it? Is it very narrowly fixated? Is it? Is your mind, as the Buddha said, expansive, spacious, open, bright? And now use this moment to extend awareness in every direction imaginable without limits. So you can experience your mind suddenly becoming as large as the, to contain even the most distant sound. You feel the mind expanding in all directions, forward, backwards, to the left, to the right, up and down, without limit. As the Buddha said, if we put a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of salt into a small cup of water, it becomes undrinkable. But if we put a teaspoon into a reservoir of water, the water is still drinkable. So we're expanding awareness so that the pain is just one sensation amongst many. And every time it shrinks back down, bring your awareness back out. 
And finally, whatever thought you might be thinking, let's change it to a very simple phrase. May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or even simpler, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Keeping awareness is open, softening any areas of the body that habitually tighten against pain. So at this time, just very slowly open your eyes and allow the visual field to flood in if your eyes were closed up to this point. And thanking you for your practice. And now if Thank you for your practice and your support. And now if there's anybody who has uh, hopefully some questions,